welcome one and all to Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial Star Trek Discovery podcast. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Welcome to the future, Pete A. Deal with me, universe. Discovery, a Star Trek podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 308, The Sanctuary, comes to you now via Not a Thing, Federation Summer Camp. Let's head into the mission briefing. Emperor Philippa Georgiou Augustus Ioponius Centaurus, overlord of Vulcan, Dominus of Quonos, and Regina Andor lays on a biobed in sickbay and explains the status of healthcare in the mirror universe. But Dr. Culber wants to know when she first began experiencing her blackouts. She says she doesn't want help from the Oracle of the Mess Hall and Savior Man to the ship. He explains the early stages of brain dysfunction will be manageable, but they don't, if they don't intervene, she won't recognize the bases around her, not even herself. Indeed, Pete, she's aggressive, she's obnoxious, uh, but. There is that risk that she'll forget her own face eventually. Howl in the mirror. Fine, fine, fine. She will get scanned. There's new sick bay tech that's going to scan her at the atomic level. Uh, and Burnham is there. She's not going to put up with Philippa's, Philippa's doo-doo. Uh, Burnham promises to stay there the whole time. Then once the lengthy uh, scan starts, Burnham decides to step away. In the hall, Burnham runs into book. Hey, he needs to go to Kwai John. There's trouble with the Emerald Chain. Uh, you know what? Let's take this problem to the Admiral. They do, and we get exposition about the changing climate in the homeworld for a book. The sea locusts that came out of the sea now savage the crops. The Chain and Osira had a solution. The tra uh, Transworms given up in exchange. Uh, but Starfleet simply can't help. There are 50 worlds just like this, most about to collapse says the ever-haggard admiral. Still, Saru suggests that Discovery can jump in as an observer uh, and is ordered to be defensive only. Pete, this set up for later in the episode, as one often does in the beginning. Of course. Uh, all this heavy, heavy exposition here, setting everything up, um, that they're going to go, that if there's the slightest provocation, of course, yes, they'll retreat, okay? Because they have no idea what Osira is capable of. Ooh. On Hunhao, Matt, speaking of Osira, Tolor explains to Auntie Osira what happened, but she doesn't believe him. And since he lost Rin the Andorian, you remember him, right? Uh, who left with Cleveland Book Booker, uh, and she had taken Talor in after his father died, and he uh, knows how difficult it was for her to keep the mercantile exchanges open, but he's just so much like his father. She taps her ring and beams him into a tramp's worm pen where he is eaten, and then her ship jumps to warp to the title card. Now, Pete, I'm glad that you just explained that to me about Osira, because in the previous scene where they said 
Osira is such a mystery. I too was confused, but now I get to see Pete. Wait a minute. She is one bad lady. Uh, so thanks, Joe, for making that clear. In the credits, we see that it is written by Kenneth Lynn and Brandon A. Schultz, directed by your the number one emeritus, Jonathan Frakes. We come out of the credits with uh, a line referring to the fact that Linus is shedding. You see, Pete, it's funny because he's an alien. As for other matters, um, what are those warp words going to be? What are those words of action going to be? Manifest? Hit it! It's all a work in progress. Indeed, Pete. Much is a work in progress. In engineering, uh, Stamets has an update uh, about the burn. Uh, Pete, where did the burn actually start? Breaking news. We now go to Pete outside the courthouse somewhere in Philadelphia. Veruven Nebula, Matt. Oh, that explains everything. There's a signal at the center of the nebula, uh, and it's deliberate. It sounds like music. Where have I heard that music before? It's the Barzan song. It's Gray's cello song. Saru listens to just the nebula. Pete, we get a close-up to his eye where his pupil opens. I suspect because they can't immediately go to a close-up of his ear and show his ear hole opening. But it's the idea he's using his alien extrasensory uh, abilities here. Uh, let's, let's hear just the lowest sounds. Let's screen out the distortion being caused by by things in space. Let's get to the real signal there. Hey, wait a minute. Ba-dump, ba-dump. It's a Federation distress signal. And distress signals have encoded messages. Start to work on decoding it right away. Uh, Stamets says, Adira can do it. Pete, she's great at this. Once the command crew leaves, Adira states a they-them pronoun preference. She's never told anyone but Gray. Pete, one might take a minus one off for the 32nd century folks not being cool or familiar or whatever with the they them pronoun preference but i get pete why adira has never shared it with anyone because they're talking to the people at home let's be more comfortable with they them pronoun preferences and pete we are and again star trek leading the way here in their courier get-ups matt book uh tells burnham that his brother is not his biological brother, but uh, Kaim, as he is name-checked now, he started hunting transworms for the chain. Uh, so 15 years having seen him here, he's become a bad guy. Uh, he just wishes, wishes she could have seen his homeworld before all this. Uh, Awoshikun notices Detmer ha- now has a new operating interface on her console. She had engineering make modifications for her. She needs fail safes, but Owo has confidence in her. Saru joins everybody else on the bridge, takes us to black alert and execute. People kind of turn their head, execute. Okay. They're kind of goofily stunned. Still Pete, they do it. Zip, zap, zoop, they're at Kwaijan. The hails aren't responded to. However, long-range sensors show a heavy cruiser-class starship here before too long. Hey, that's going to be Osira. Uh, Burnham and Book are told to beam down. If there's any trouble, come on back. Uh, We cut back to the Med Bay or or Medical Science Bay. It looks like they maybe changed up the the set a little bit to suggest somewhere else. Philippa is in a funny scanning suit. 
Um, but Pollard is going to give her a mild sedative. Countdown from 10 and <laughs> she is out. Scientific advancement is good. Uh, Stamets joins Adira. I feel like, Matt, we need to know where this more darkened location is where you play music on the discovery um i'll tell you where it is pete you remember remember the looking window that you identified in the last podcast uh dialogue window matt dialogue window is a real thing i have written in a script interior dialogue window so that's at a t-junction in a hallway uh, but let's see we need a music room and we kind of redressed the mess hall set last week to be the vulcan trial room so i don't want to re-redress that wait a minute pete what if we rolled the piano into the tea hallway uh, that's going to look like a hallway wait a minute pete what if you couldn't see the hallways due to low lights boom music room on discovery we've seen this room before though um in the flashback, it, it seems like it is evocative of the generation ship that Adira and Gray were uh, passengers on or crew of. It's never been explicitly made clear. So it visually, uh, I just wonder, like, can we get a, oh, hey, they're in the rec room. Uh, Saru to rec room. Stamets answers like you know i don't think matt and i intentionally mean to deride this episode and i think it speaks to the tremendous nature of the balance of this season but this is clearly the worst episode of discovery this season not even number one matt can save us from a number two um, I, I would argue that this is the, shall we say, least great episode since the, uh, oh, the the season one episode where they they beam down to the planet Saru and Burnham and Pavo. Uh, yeah, pa uh, was it Pavo? Yes, it was Pavo. And yeah, uh, hey, hey, Matt, you you know what that episode had too? Uh, what's that? It had uh, blue CGI life forms. Uh that it did. Uh, it is I the curse. Okay, so if, if the movies have the odd even curse, okay, Discovery has the curse of not really their uh, terrestrial bound aliens. Although I think in this episode, the reason that the um, locusts are blue is because they decided to go with a yellow filter to show the woods of Toronto as very alien. And if I look at my, if I look at my color wheel, Pete, yellow background, Yellow color uh, is going to play nicely, contrast nicely with the blue, the blue green, etc. But, but Pete, let's dive into the T Junction hallway, the music room. Adira is playing the cello, and uh, they're not alone. Stamets is he's sitting at the piano, ready to tickle those ivories. Adira shares that Gray has stopped appearing, but is still there inside with the trill thing. Perhaps Gray needed space. There's some reflection on the confusing mix that former trills can be in the host. Uh, and with that, it's time for the two to play music. Interestingly, Matt, key G minor is used as they play here. Uh, to the ready room where Tilly updates Saru that Burnham and Book have reached the surface and they will soon lose the ability to track them once they reach the protected area. 
Uh, Rin the Andorian comes in, a security officer escorting him, but they weren't supposed to meet just yet. And his wife sets him straight. Yes, Rin coming in all blustering, giving sass. Tilly knocks him down a few pegs. You see, Pete, as you mentioned, it's funny because Rin is played by Mary Wiseman's husband. It's it's funny. Oh, and the Viridian uh, Osiris ship is inbound in 15 minutes. Uh, so leave if you want. Good luck with that. Inside the planet's sanctuary zone, Burnham and Book are off the scanner uh, and seeing the sea locusts. There's so many. But only some can be thought suggested to fly away. Uh, Pete, we won't ponder on how it might just take, uh, like, how many thought suggesting people could take to get rid of them. Instead, <laughs> hands up, it's highway robbers and Book's brother. But Pete, take us back to the medical bay. Culber reports that Giorgio's encephalographic, or I think it was encephalogic, but anyway, something with encephala, which means brain, levels are peaking. Uh, and she's having an episode. Pollard says she's in danger of a cerebral hemorrhage, but the atomic scan is only 83% complete um, and they need to abort. Colber says they can't stop if they want to find out what's wrong with her. Cue the flashbacks. Son! Even the weird holographic uh, face there. They, they kind of suggested in the preview last week of this week's episode uh that she was a hologram that she had been replaced that is not the case um but her heart rate is elevated to 210 that they're almost there and she wakes what was it she was dreaming of matt it was a beautiful dream of how culber's head would look on her wall she removes i'm sorry culber removes all but one of the leads uh she keeps one and we know that she keeps one because with her back to them uh she holds it in her hand as she leaves sick pay now interesting pete that you should say that the holographic overlay was was appearing all glitchy my take was that perhaps she was physically phasing pete perhaps even spider-verse style will we see you know she is of course from an alternate world will we see perhaps uh philippa giorgio noir will we see uh, uh <laughs> philippa giorgio uh riding a uh a mechanical uh spider will we see you know the, the male version of giorgio will we see you know etc cetera, etc cetera. is this the great convergence of the spider-verse and star trek time will tell um, but back on the planet, Kahim show uh, runs the show around these parts. It's established, and he's um, where does he run the show from, Matt? Uh, fr from this vaunted Toronto area home. Uh, uh, you mean Cameron's house from Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Um, because that's what it looked like. <laughs> <laughs> regardless, I'm being a little excessively finger waggy to say a home in the Toronto area. I mean. Of course, it's a home in the Toronto area, but it is a very cool, open style, Cameron's you know, house. very modern looking uh, home. Just so we know to, that I'm kidding. Cameron's house is not in the Toronto area. They they filmed in the Illinois, Chicago suburbs. Chica -chica. Um, book, it is established, has been gone since father and grandfather sold out to the Emerald Chain. Oh, there's such tension between these two. And Pete... I would perhaps argue to to our friends, you know, this is all 
we're all part of the Star Trek family here. And we're not overly raking this episode over the coals, but I would suggest to our listeners that if you want a little proof that this episode didn't unfold the way maybe they had hoped for it to be an A++ episode, the fact that there are such short scenes, not even necessarily intercut, like the bomb is going to go off and on the ship, they're concerned about the bomb count off and on the planet, they're concerned about the bomb. That's intercutting because things are happening at the same time. Here you have little tiny scenes, the sanctuary and they're, they're arrested. And then the med bay where there's trouble. And then the planet where there's an update about the Emerald chain. Then we go back to orbit where the Viridian has arrived. Saru will not provoke. Osira hails, and she's wondering if this Starfleet vessel is lost. Actress Janet Kidder is delicious, being both bored and threatening and overpowering at the all at the same time. Uh, oh, and hand over Rin, please, uh, because of course, he, fine, he's uh, hanging out with the Federation. Uh, Osira saying all but the words Federation Schmederation. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the surface, Kaim says that Book needs to give up Rin as well. So here is the intercut you're talking about. Back up on Discovery, Saru says that if Rin has committed crimes, that the Federation will hold him accountable. But Osiris says they can't even hold themselves accountable for the mess they've made and the blood on their hands. Back to the surface, where Book counsels Kaheem on this slippery slope he's gone down with the emerald chain uh but Kaheem says that they are his people and his family he lights up his head to punch book but then doesn't do it instead calls him a coward Osira says Rin has broken a lifetime contract that that's the big crime Saru says it sounds like slavery, but Osira says it doesn't surprise her. A Kelpian would frame everything in terms of enslavement. Saru points out Orions themselves had a history of slavery as well. The Federation doesn't want war with the Emerald Chain. That is why it seems he was sent alone. She demands Rin again or Kwajan will pay the price. You got five minutes here. Bryce still can't reach Burnham and Rees reports that the Viridian has moved into the atmosphere with weapons hot. Yellow alert, Mr. Rin to the bridge. Back to the planet we go. Osira is on the holophone. Uh, hey, thanks for getting me book as I wanted. But uh, now there's this whole Rin thing. Also, stop questioning me. And what's up with this fancy defensive setup? Hey, not going to play ball? Well, enjoy your famine, you know, you and your child. Hey, still not going to play ball with the chain? That's when Osira has her ship start to fire on the defensive grid. Cut to Burnham and Book, who see that the defensive positions are being photoned. Time to do something. Uh, the bridge notes that the defenses are being systematically taxed. Rin is asked, what do you know about what's going on? Tilly gives him some sass, but Rin won't talk. With that, a shipwide signal is opened. The sea locusts swarm beneath the defensive shields as the bombardment continues here. Bryce reports no word from Burnham. Owo notes these defenses failing here. Saru 
tells Reese to bring weapons online. It felt a little uncharacteristic for Reese to say, but Captain, the Admiral's orders, but Saru, I think the character kind of rescues the writers here. We're going to follow Starfleet protocols. Yes, we were told not to do this, but they're attacking the planet. So Starfleet says we do this. Uh, yeah, this imperfect, uh, but Pete parallel to all of this, Philippa is running her scan data through the computer. Uh, Pete, I must confess I paused. I had no idea what the screen said, but luckily she can quickly read it. Hmm. Turns out she's dying. Although <laughs> Colbert quickly catches up with her. He's got security in tow. Um, he says, Hey, you know, you might not automatically be dying for sure. Uh, Colbert indeed, Pete, I think there's a deleted scene where Colbert says, Philippa, um, it's, we, we, we need to set up the section 31 spinoff here. Well, of course you're not dying. Um, however, Though it seems Philippa's instinct is to uh, make her way off the ship to go save Burnham. Instead, Colbert suggests that he and uh, Giorgio talk. Do you know how the writers of this episode solve the uh, the B-team conflict? Uh, I do not. They don't. Oh. Well, uh, uh, Pete, let's not be overly harsh on the writers. In fact, let me just say... This was at a point in the episode where I was a little confused about what was going on on the planet. So luckily, on the planet, Burnham, though she pretty solidly knows that the comms can't get through the defensive shield, nonetheless gives a comms update. Pete, that's your expositional update for the audience. Burnham and Book are trying to fix the defensive projector. One is out. They are headed there now. Uh, back up on the bridge, Rin knows... Uh, Rin knows some particulars of what's going on uh, and that they ultimately need to find an offensive answer that's to to be able to attack Osiris' ship, but they can't fire from Discovery. So Tilly suggests the Detmer fly books ship with Rin helping to target the soft spot on Osiris' ship. Pete, that makes Detmer the rogue one because they're going to claim she was a, a, a rogue person. So So all rebellions are built on hope. There was also, much like Reese kind of pressing Saru, there was a strange, hey, Lieutenant Nilsson is going to say here, if they fire on the Emerald Chain, it will reta retaliate on the Federation and lead to the next several episodes of storytelling. Um, Yeah, Pete, this is an episode where you can see you can see the undershirt throwing shoe th th showing through the dress shirt. That is to say, you can. What you just said is totally true. That they explain why the thing needs to be the next thing, and it's it's very. The the, the connections are obvious and perhaps less organic than possible. With that, Pete, we cut to just just what we were talking about this this attack this attack from a non Federation ship. Rin has the cat jump on him. He attempts to act surprised about this at on the planet. Uh, brothers and sisters find Burnham and Book, and they fight. Uh, Burnham only maybe kills one with a crossbow. It's fine. Back to space. Rin seems to act like he's terrified, and Detmer's glad 
that he's her co-pilot. Pete, why is that? Because like him, she too has struggled with confidence. Yes, if you face something, you can beat it. Be brave just a little bit more. Uh, he stares at her and says, yeah. Uh, Detmer takes the ship to full manual, and uh, Rin seems to act like he's all confused and scared. On the planet, Kaihim attacks Book, has a knife to his throat, but Burnham has the really stylized, smooth rifle. Uh, Book is able to turn the tables, but Kaihim can't give him up here. Above the planet, Rin points out the Viridian's weapon system generator. Tilly reports the Viridian is standing down after it's been hit. Osira hails, and Saru offers assistance, but she tells him he's sealed his fate and that of the Federation before she warps off. On the planet, Book finds out Kaim has a son who will now starve as a result of Osira taking her ship and her ball and her repellent and going home to wage war against Federation. Uh, Burnham says, wait, you are both empaths because um, lighting your head up is apparently what an empath does. And you can move the sea locusts out together, but not just the two of you. Indeed, what if Discovery gave a beacon to help? I would further argue, Pete, that in this scene here, which has two parts, one is uh, Kahim and Burnham and Book discussing this, and then immediately Burnham is on the ship. What if Discovery gave a beacon? I think maybe we have an edit there where maybe this was a longer scene, and I think whatever uh, saggy parts might have existed in the episode that didn't make the final edit the fact that she instantly, there's not even like, let's talk about it on the bridge. It's just kind of almost mid-scene. She's suddenly on the bridge as we get the beacon ready to go here. So I, again, I think some of the stitching of making a less great episode less, less great, if you will, or making the less, making it greater than the less greatness. Um, maybe that's the solution. But, but the two men start to empathize uh, and uh, Bryce is ready to amplify the signal. Shall he? execute uh, Car uh saru says carry on which gets a that's not bad kind of head motion pete everybody's really invested here reese i think just says go but his <laughs> emotions show go you bugging sons of bugs go 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 the locusts leave in the mess hall detmer went <clears throat> full manual uh, and as Rin gives a thumbs up in approval from the sad Andorian table, wife Tilly comes over and he laments that his contributions, Matt, are just as valuable as the cats. Pete, but it's cute because they're married. He seems to act like he's warming up to the kindness of the Federation. References made to scaring Andorian children with promises of Federation summer camp. Um, but ultimately, Pete, he's going to share his secret. His secret is he knows that the chain is running out of dilithium. And now Tilly knows. In the corridors, Booker, Burnham, and uh, Kaheem pass Linus. He's shedding, and Burnham takes Kaheem's boy to go 
peel Linus's shed. Pete, it's funny because he's an alien. <laughs> the brothers here, though not biological, uh, continue to repair their bond. Hey, book, that's a story, right? <laughs> You'll have to get it next time. Hopefully that next time will be sooner than 15 years or maybe the remaining episode 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, five episodes. Right, Matt? Later, or, brother. Or a short track shot at the same time as this episode. Short track directed by Jonathan Frakes. Wowee, that would make me not cancel CBS All Access in January. Culber finds Adira asleep in engineering and Stamets is finishing up as they're waiting for the algorithm to algorithmize, <laughs> compute. Um, uh, he tells them that uh, Gray is not speaking to Adira anymore. And uh, they, this is Adira, uh, are really something. And uh, they, Adira, says that uh, they are also not really asleep, but awake. Uh, they leave because they need to rest. And uh, Stamets and uh, Culber uh, delight in being able to help the young people. Indeed, Pete, the two men akin to blushing poppies here. Now, I just need to point out, Pete, that this was a scene. Here's what I saw unfold on social media. I personally did not witness um, some people, perhaps more similar to you and I as, you know, uh, cisgender white men. Um, but apparently this, this scene really riled some people. I must confess on first viewing, I felt like this was a scene where the lesson was to teach the they, them pronoun. And, and I must confess, Pete, first view... I felt like it was a little too much. Second view, I just realized, hey, they're probably using a non-gendered pronoun uh, about as much as one would use a gendered pronoun in a gendered version of this scene. What I found interesting was, uh, and, and again, I, I say this not to be silly, but rather with, with, with a sense of uh, growth and humility, to see some people online, um, allies as we are of lgbt folk and and whatnot some people saying you know you know to see cis essentially saying i'm putting some words in in twitter people's mouths here but you know all cisgender men who are upset with this scene or or all cisgender men are upset with this scene and it, i have to say at first i was like well i'm gonna write my response tweet to say don't paint people with the same brush and then i said right. oh my goodness this must be what it's like for non-cisgender white men to sometimes be painted with the same brush, whether it's race or orientation or gender, whatever it might be. So though this scene riled some feathers and other people riled feathers about those whose feathers were riled, I felt like I walked away from this scene a little bit more of a clearer, clearer person when it came to infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I seek to better understand how to do this. And Star Trek has always been part of that conversation. Um, you know, I'll, I'll fully admit my default is, is not to those pronouns. So I feel like I'm being informed and, and taught how to do that 
also, if pronoun choice uh, hurts your privates or your ego, I think Star Trek is the least of your problems. Yeah, and I would just I would just say this is a perfect example of the value of having fiction explore these things. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded too. I know that the I know that my beloved reality show Survivor. I know strictly speaking, it's not fiction. It's you know kind of competition reality. But um, to have a to have a competitor a couple of years ago at this point who uh, in the course of the season. Um, revealed him uh, revealed themselves pardon me to be trans um and the ensuing discussion because this was a this was somebody who on the show was a sympathetic you know was sympathetically presented hopefully that reflected reality as well um it became an opportunity to say hey this is a show mostly about who can swim the fastest to get the thing and then win a jeep and then win money but through that lens of i'm having fun in my island reality show to have the honest conversation, you walk away and go, oh, this isn't something that people do to get attention. This is something because people feel feelings that aren't my feelings, but we can just say, help me understand how you feel, not you must feel the way I think you should feel. So again, a lot of value in this little scene. I think it was the most honest and best written part of the episode. Outside the shuttle bay, Book is reflecting on the fact that Discovery has saved his planet. Uh, he believes in Discovery. He wants in to the Federation, into Starfleet. Uh, in a playful way, Burnham is somewhat finger waggy. He'll need to talk to the Burn uh, to, to the captain, uh, but Burnham is going to help fix his ship. And he notes Pete that he likes to be there with Burnham, and she liked Quay John. Pete, we have an incoming threat analysis. Can you start us with all simple Talore? I Talore. Uh, we barely knew ye. Fed to a trance worm here. Matt, if you're going to tell me they do a trance, maybe like have it make you do like more of a trance thing. Instead, I stand there for a second and I get eaten. Um, I will slightly disagree. Here's why. Yes, when given some physical distance, when given some some opportunity, the trance worms, we've seen how they can turn you into a complete uh, a dullard of a trance. I think, though, here the incongruity is actually working in anti-Osiris' favor in that, and I will just, I'll make some assumptions or projections here, because there's less space between the trance worm and Talor, or maybe the trance worm is just super hungry. Uh, as opposed to being the lion that looks at the child through the glass and kind of says, this is weird, but I also had steak this morning. I will paw at the glass. This is the transform that jumps on him. And the fact that Talor is told it will be painless, but he screams as he is ripped apart. I think that's more, uh, in the best sense, the show getting some mileage to inform us about our, our new villain uh, than it is an incongruity. So we did some fan casting previously about what we'd figure for Osira, you know, name checked several episodes out. I don't think any of us had the ne the uh, niece of Margot Kidder in mind, though she checks the Canadian-based box. 
Uh, she does. I mean, we had said Canadian woman, uh, middle-aged, uh, and perhaps famous. We got the famous last name, name Janet Kidder, uh, in her late 40s. Um, a lengthy resume, I must confess, have not, I have not seen much of her work, I think because a lot of that is perhaps Canadian-based. Pete, I bet, and I have yet, neither you nor I have listened to the feedback from Fred from the Netherlands, uh, our famous Admiral Fred. Um, perhaps he's familiar with her from uh, La Femme Nikita, uh, or perhaps I see she appeared in Man in the High Castle, of which I've seen some but not all. Um, uh, perhaps Fred is a big fan of The Legend of Dick and Dom. She was in an episode of that in 2011. But Pete, I think that though she is not you know, uh, one of these these most famous Canadian actresses. I think that she uh, she ticks most of the boxes that you had put up there. So so kudos there, um, Pete. From ticked boxes to ticks and other uh, creatures that are bothersome, we have these sea locusts, which are locusts that have come out from the sea and are now doing what all locusts do: eating the crops. See, there are locusts. <laughs> Um, I appreciated that they were kind of beautiful to look at and not, not scary bugs. Um, but Pete, we also, we must admit here, one of the threats in the episode is brother Kaheem, who, uh, in the pace of the episode, again, maybe the pace, the frantic pace, a result of trying to cut past things, not quite working. Um, brother Kaheem having lured book here, uh, to, to sell him out. That's the, the revelation in the first half. All because Osiris trying to get her hands on Rin. We get the disclosure there at the end of the episode. Um, will we see Kaim back? There's more book story, obviously, to tell. He doesn't know how T-Rex got the name Cleveland Book Booker. So we're going to have to find that out. He, as a member of the audience as well. With that, Pete, let's set our scanners all the way to some long-range theories here. First of all, um, any potential romantic past for Book and Kaheem? This is Star Trek. All, all, all loves are welcome. I did not get that vibe. More so, I had the question, how did Burnham spend a year with Booker and not fully understand other than, you are empathic? Why his head lights up and why also Kaim's head light up and they pray chant and we can send it to all the locusts. I think Pete, perhaps you speak to a, a weakness in this episode uh, or, or, or a weak episode. This perhaps being another spot. I'll piggyback off what you're saying. We get the line early on stated hurriedly, but uh, that the best scientists are trying to come up with a solution. Are you telling me that the best scientists, or first of all, let me suppose, Pete, that every um, Kwaijani, if that's the proper term, person um, has this, this empathic ability. And even if that's not the case, it clearly is a significant number. Even if it's, you know, 5%, 5% out of all the people there is, is still a lot. So one person can move some, and then two people with a beacon solves the problem entirely. Like, couldn't you get 10 brothers and sisters together to do this? 
Uh, and I know for story reasons, the answer is no, because Discovery has to save the day. But again, that's right. kind of where, you know, the story structure is showing through the story there. Um, I'll add to that, Pete. You mentioned the the wooden uh, weapon. And maybe this is me being a little unfair. But are the wooden weapons that seem very low tech, very low prep from a production point of view, are, they, are those weapons perhaps undermade and maybe proof that this is a budget saving episode it wasn't the best script yes we're out in the toronto woods but there's not a lot of variety going on here is is, is this a a calm before the storm i kind of dug the design it looks like the design of a of a modern type of gun that they said all right we're we're going to make this look wooden and natural and organic um, I think the design of this show is is not the problem, particularly in this episode. Uh, just as a quick aside, wonderful featurette through um, Star Trek Discovery's social media presence. Gersha Phillips, the uh, the costumer, uh, taking us through uh, the the Starfleet uniforms of the. Um, 32nd century and you know the the thought that is put into them and the techniques i mean admiral vance's top part of his uniform is 3d printed um so that it doesn't look sewn and things like that so with a similar approach no doubt taken to you know, let, let's make this weapon look like it is made of wood and maybe it is an actual weapon with pieces, you know, affixed to it to look smooth and one piece. I was okay with that. Lastly, Pete, at least last one from me, uh, this came to me as a, you know, I'm down on this episode. That's the truth. Um, but at the end of the episode, the happy ending of the episode, this came to me like a lightning bolt. Burnham and Book, the happy couple. David Ajawa, the, 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 not, not the main male lead, but a male lead for this season. Like seasonal male leads before him, will he last? Nay, is Book destined to die so that Burnham's character might twist and turn dramatically? I've seen other people suggest that. Gosh, I hope not. I mean, he's now made overtures eight episodes in. He wants to join the Federation. Is there some path to him becoming, uh, to Quajan becoming a member of the world, to him entering Starfleet? I hope that David Ayala sticks around, Matt. Let's talk about Giorgio because we completely resolved that storyline, right? Hey, come with me. We will go talk somewhere private before a two-parter the next two episodes that is surrounding your character. Um, Pete, what would you like to explore there? So we've heard her say before that she killed her mother. Interestingly, for the first time, Burnham says, no, you didn't. Um, I would agree. Uh, wh where's your theory, Pete? Well, I, I think it's all about, you know, the, the actuality of deconstructing Philippa Giorgio is that they're going to metaphorically deconstruct her uh, with this storyline. We've never seen her vulnerable before. And, you know, what Michelle Yeoh is as a gift 
to this production. Um, also assuming that that will carry on to the section 31 show that she will headline uh, that I'm super interested in, in seeing and just want to know so much more about. And I hope some of that news will become more public over these next couple episodes. It seems with her storyline finally being addressed. And I certainly would welcome that, particularly since I felt like in this episode, I know it told me her medical condition is bad and worsening. And I know she's dying that. Yeah. And I, and I know that that's the prognosis, but I feel like Giorgio is lashing out in a way because the script says so. And not because you've convinced me that she, she normally is the, I mean, obviously she's very powerful and capable of deadly things, but the way she's been, um, in this universe kind of has this slinky seductive, you know, uh, could murder you could sleep with you kind of thing here. We're getting all rage again. I know why the story tells me that she's acting that way in this episode. I just remain a bit unconvinced as to why the story is telling Michelle, yo, like emotionally, why is Michelle, yo being told to act this way? One of the failings of this episode is in part, not, the fault of the episode. It's the number of things that need to be addressed. We need to have this, a story and book needs to return to his home world and discovery needs to help. We need to address Giorgio. Oh, Hey, there's where the burn started and the information we got from Navarre last episode. Oh, and Hey, there's this music. It, it just feels like there are so many story masters it's difficult to serve them all oh and hey matt poor linus yeah which i i mean i know on the one hand it's being played for comedy but and linus look linus has been the source of comedy before but it's a little weird to have star trek say look he does alien things tee hee hee that's silly versus you know versus like he, look, I get it. I don't want him shedding in the mess hall either, but kind of like problem solved. He's a real dirty. So we're going to make him eat in his room for the rest of the rest of the week. Uh, maybe he'll just have to work from his room too. that dirty, dirty. Was it less cloying than him sneezing on the snooty uh, science officer from the Enterprise who became a stain on a rock at the beginning <laughs> of season two? I mean, again, Linus, the Linus is a comedic tool in the toolbox, but much like other things in this episode, just because you tell me, you know, man walks into a bar, says, ouch, that doesn't mean that I find it funny. Just like, you know, Giorgio is so scared that she's only means, therefore she's really means. Well, I, 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 it didn't work for me. Same thing here. Frankly, I feel bad for Linus who's going through a natural um saurian thing that apparently happens yearly and now it's like you know let's go pull his face skin up again it, it just didn't land for me what i find interesting about all this pete is we've we've referred back to that first pavo episode interest uh, the title of which is sevis patchum parabellum um it also the eighth episode of its season uh, episode 108 it also the setup for 
the big things that are about to happen. Um, I know that the subsequent episodes were not literally a two-parter, but we had, you know, we had Into the Forest I Go, and then, you know, which which was on the one end of the Klingon battle, and then uh, the episode after that, uh, Despite Yourself, which was kind of at the other end. So yeah. that, that the Latin episode, Si uh, Vis Pachum Parabellum, had some of these flaws, some of these same flaws at the same point with the same setup for the same point in the season. So it's just kind of very, very weird there. That it would happen two seasons later. I agree. Uh, the Ferubian or Barubian Nebula, Matt, um, this signal music like distress call uh, that strangely Tilly has heard, though she did not go to the seed vault ship nor was she there when um gray and adira has played the cello but she knows all about pete like any good first officer she's in the know. <laughs> like any acting for anyone in the first officer position um she 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 she's in the know she's spending her evenings reading over reports being able to tabulize and collate and uh, get all that Again, info that's a line of dialogue away as acting first officer i am aware of uh commander stamets report of this music agree that that's one line away and not but and the absence of it may suggest writing issues or editing to solve writing issues perhaps this this scene was written more um expositionally or with more explanation or contact maybe there was more to this scene and it wasn't all working and it was cut down i also mentioned pete this is completely random and not in my notes but um in the scene where saru is saying uh to booker and burnham before they uh head down the beginning of the speech is something like uh mr booker i cannot order you what to do but burnham here's what i'm going to order you to do both times i've watched it i think they sped up Doug Jones's delivery, his voice pitches a little bit higher and it kind of quickly gets to some of the hairs. I want you to do, do this, do that. Um, which again, maybe is further proof. Like this was the best take and it was a lot of dialogue and we needed to spell out, go this, do that, the other, but it's too slow. So we're just going to speed it up again. There's a, there's a bunch of underwears showing for this episode <laughs> says I, I will say this Pete, the Verubin Nebula. This is the first time it's ever been mentioned. So if you want to dig deep on it, uh, you already have all the info that there is. What is inside the center of the Rubin Nebula, Matt? Pete, it is a Federation ship. We know that. Um, and, of course, that is the big question for these remaining five or so episodes. Um, uh, so, I don't know. Pete, my first thought, I, I almost hesitate to share it because... I am a champion of give us new Star Trek that is the new. You don't need to give us rehash. You know, we've had very successful outings with the secret Klingons that you never knew about. You, the show has been very successful with the secret Spock history that you never knew about. The secret Pike successes that you never knew about. Is it the Enterprise K, the Enterprise N, the Enterprise P, whatever it is? Is it the latest Enterprise that's been caught there for 100 years uh, or whatever, that's where my mind goes first. To to, to turn the corner, wait, it's all staticky. Filter for 
uh, Verudin Nebula radiation. Oh my goodness. It's the Enterprise. The mind goes there, but the show has done it before. I hope not. I'm going to tell you what I think is in that nebula. Let's hear it, Pete. This is on the record. Coffee. Uh, Admiral Janeway coffee or just coffee in Come general? On, man. It's, a famous, it's a famous line. <laughs> well, okay. Fair enough. Um, uh, Pete, I thought you were, about, I thought this was about to be your line in the sand. Your, your, you know, Voke, the torchbearer, Ash. I got Tyler. nothing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be honest with you. I, I've got no feeling of of what is it. I'm tantalized by it, but I just have no sense of what it is. I had not considered until you said, you know, a legacy connection that it could be that we've seen a Constitution class vessel at Starfleet headquarters, which now, Matt, you know, we we spore jump away inside of because last episode we left the distortion field headquarters and then spore jumped away. Yeah. Um, I, all of these concerns and I would also argue many of the strengths this season come under, it's not a major theory, but to me it's kind of like an Uber background theory, which is this season three of discovery is not taxed with launching CBS All Access, is not taxed with trying to make the right kind of Star Trek uh, anymore, right in quotes. Uh, it's not taxed with uh, a season of, of showrunners being fired. So there's this stability, there's this growth going on for Star Trek Incorporated amidst the, the creation of this season, whether it's the writing. Uh, although I will point out, Pete, if you remember way, way back, which seems like a million years ago, um, when there was the the gentleman who quit the show uh, over uh, his own use of a slur and being offended that that uh, he could not use that word despite being an African American gentleman, um, that was the writing of season three. So just this, here we are watching season three, and that feels like legitimately maybe two years ago. It does, and we never had the crisis on the bridge. Uh podcasts that we had were seasons one and two that was as close as they came and we're now clear of how that affected any kind of storytelling but here's kind of my point i think that in some of the errors in this episode and some of the major successes this season i think that you're seeing a show that isn't burdened with trying to get trying to serve many masters uh, the fact that, for example, that they are leaning uh, much heavier than most other TV shows into sharing trans characters and the trans perspective, um, one might argue, and I'm not making this argument, but one might argue, oh, no, you're going to upset your core audience. Uh, I think if that concern was raised, the, you know, the, the Kurtzman crew's answer was, you know, damn the torpedoes, we're doing the right thing, we're, we're pushing boundaries, we're doing what's timely, and so forth. I wonder, too, if maybe this episode as a, all right, set up what's to come and do this and do that. Is it also maybe because the foot's not on the gas in terms of, um, you know, crisis, crisis. We have to make the best episode because we just lost another showrunner, that kind of thing. Even down to Pete, I mean, the inclusion of the Rin actor, who I, I think um, is not the strongest performer. 
Um, they're leaning into, hey, this is the cute, this is the inside joke that everybody's going to get and, and, and things like that as opposed to get me the best dramatic guy in Canada who can really push through that latex and, and give us one heck of a performance. The um, word, is it a title? Is it a name? T-Rex, Matt, with book. What's the story there? I'm not sure, but as I've said before, and, and this is not a criticism, you know, Star Trek is interested. Star Trek would like to get to where Star Wars is, where you say a thing and go, I don't really know, but somebody's going to pick up that baton at some point and do the comic, do the mini episode, do the uh, role-playing game add-on module, do do whatever it might be. So it, it, if this is just background for the sake of background, Okay, fine. If it's an opportunity for, you know, as as I half jokingly, half seriously said during the recap, if it's an opportunity for the short trek that was shot, you know, as 10 extra pages of script in this episode, but it was going to be shot uh, for the purposes of a short trek, so be it. Maybe it's set up there. And if not, maybe it's something that we get in the future. Maybe it's a novel, etc. The gray not speaking to Adira um they compare it to hiding that he's hiding from them uh is there a connection with the melody i don't think that there's a connection to the melody i think the melody's inclusion in this episode is more to bring you know to to remind us um through sound uh and not just in the scene of i heard this once i heard this you know kind of in the, in the montage of previously on uh, if you will, I think that it's, it's meant to further remind us that that this um, melody is here and whatnot, and frankly, to give us a, a Stamets uh, scene where he's he's helping guide Adira in that paternal sense. Um, as for why Gray is gone, I mean, again, I return to the idea we're we're running short on episodes. Now we're not running vastly short; we have five to go, but. Are we going to spend a lot of time with, oh, look, there's a new problem with Gray and the symbiote, and that's why he's not back? Um, perhaps not, uh, but time will tell. Osira has seen Discovery now. She has communicated with Saru, a Kelpian captain. She noted his race. Uh, we know that Kaminar joined the Federation. Did she just jump off uh, to go co cause problems with his home planet? I think she's headed back to Emerald Chain uh, HQ in order to, you know, she's, she's limping away, but limping away in a supposed position of strength. Uh, the wonderful line, perhaps the best line of the episode uh, you know, you will feel the full weight of the chain. Um, so I think that's, I think that she's gone to go get reinforcements and whether they're headed to Kaminar or Federation HQ or the most um, outlying of the 30 some odd Federation worlds. Uh, I expect a big old fleet of, um, of, of syndicate ships to be coming after, you know, our side in the near future. Lastly, Matt, what should Saru's catchphrase be? Um, I don't know, but I have the confidence just from the, this is silly and nobody knows what's going on, to, 
oh, that's better. I mean, it's played for a bit more comedy than I care for. But this is a tight bridge crew. This is a family. Um, and I think that they're they're working towards whatever that one is where we're going to go, yeah, that's it. Sock it to me. <laughs> Maybe it'll be boldly go. Speaking of boldly going, Pete, our opportunity here to thank everyone who boldly goes to patreon.com slash fantastic geek and helps keep us listener supported, particularly as we have been chugging out some larger episodes lately that require more storage and the bleeps and the bloops and whatnot. That support uh, counts now more than ever. You are making that possible. So we ask you, what is the value, the amount you place on our content, uh, whether it is getting exclusive uh, content via patreon.com slash fantastic geek, whether it is getting early listens and looks at what we do, we try to give as much as we can back to you. With that, Pete, let's go to Hailing Frequencies. Hailing Frequencies open, sir. We start with our Twitter poll, and uh, in response to some discussion from last week, Pete, I avoided a, a clear 4321 under the suspicion that anti-discovery folks just look for the hashtag and vote for the ones. So the choices were, from top to bottom, it's com- or what did you think of this week's episode? Uh, it's complicated, got 25%. Someone will get demoted, got 8.3%. Mesmerizing, because they're mesmerized, uh, got 50%. And then Green with Envy got 16.7%. We heard first from James, it's at Big Killin', who says, Another terrific episode, so many great characters. Any chance Saru lands on Smack That? Uh, Anyone that's (laughs) had to make a parent go to the doctor was triggered by Philippa. I Killed My Mother is the new Live Long and Prosper. Can't wait for your thoughts. Pete James continues by saying, weird theory, maybe I missed something, but this season hasn't had uh, a straight male human character with any significant speaking time. I think the Kovich is an AI, so he doesn't count. Would the writers have done that by design? So your thoughts, Pete? I mean, I don't know that anybody's keeping score from that perspective, like all right, you, you didn't do that. Uh, so, so there you go. I, I think that all the character choices have been made organically and authentically rather than forced, you know, for as much as we're hearing grief from these chuckleheads on Twitter that pronouns, uh, make their wee wees hurt. Um, you know, that is proof that, the show is doing the right thing in terms of the social commentary. I I would add to that. I mean, I think Star Trek at its core, um, that, that sort of thing is, is obviously not at the center of the show. Although obviously historically, you know, the white male captain has, has been a thing. Um, Also too, I would suggest perhaps to James, yes, I would agree straight male human character, um, but you know, we do have Doug Jones there. Who's, who's a straight male human, um, that he is in prosthetics, uh, you know, obviously makes the character not right. human, but, uh, but Pete, your thoughts. Again, I come back to the words of Wilson Cruz, who I think is an excellent spokesperson for 
the show for Star Trek in general and, and really as an artist. This show looks like society. Um, so that that's all I need. I feel comfortable in his comfort that it is reflective of the world we live in and really art should be. Back to the Twitter comments here. We heard from Andre Yeager. That's at Dr. Polo 1983. Loved the episode. Curious that the origination point of the burn and the music are tied together. We also have more book history. Will he be the newest member of Starfleet? Will Osira really declare vengeance on the Federation with a dwindling supply of dilithium? Which is a good question, Pete. You know, what resources do they have to actually fight the fight? Uh, we heard from JT Adkins. That's at JTA is me. Have to admit, the floating Magic Sea Crickets felt like an out-of-left-field addition <laughs> and the solution of their relocation odd and small. Happy with several of the character arcs, but as a story, it felt like the ep was trying to do too many things at once. These things happen. We heard from Boldly Going Wherever. That's at K-C-L-Y-L-E-1. Uh, cool to see Book's homeworld. Great scenes with Adira, Stamets, and Culber. Were the weapons on Book's planet basically crossbows? I would say yes, Pete. Uh, Detmer seems to have gotten her wings back in some great action scenes. Not my favorite episode, but good. Uh, we heard back from uh, JT Atkins again. Lots of things set in motion, impatient for what's next. In the meantime, it's nice to see Detmer fully back in the pilot seat. And Pete, he tagged actor Emily Coots. Uh, we heard from Brett Desmo-Williams. That's at B-W-D-E-S-M-O. Another great ep in the season. Hugh and Giorgio need a medical CSI-like buddy cop spinoff. <laughs> Loves Stamets' response to Adira's they-them request. My crush on Detmer is cemented. Oh, who didn't know the song would be a signal? Uh, and two to go here, Pete. We hear first from Spider-Ham Lincoln. That's at TessLC139. Not my favorite episode, but it had its moments. Notable positives. Stamets and Adira, Colburn and Giorgio, Tilly and Saru, and especially Detmer on the Century Bird. Yes. Looking forward to Saru's eventual captain's phrase. Next episode looks great. Uh, and lastly, Pete, we heard uh, from James Otis Hall III. That's at TXCalPaddy72. I'll do it manually. Got to do it manually, baby. Scott Lincoln writes in to Facebook as well. Uh, to our post from last week's episode, Unification 3. Currently listening to your podcast of this episode, you briefly discussed the different first officer options instead of Tilly, and you talked about Dr. Culver and how medical personnel in Starfleet do not typically enter a command track. Respectfully, I can think of a couple examples. Admiral Leonard McCoy, the next generation encounter at Farpoint, he had a high rank, though he may not have been in command of anything or anyone. Two, Captain Beverly Crusher, USS Pasteur, alternate timeline from The Next Generation, All Good Things. Number three, Commander Troy taking and passing the bridge uh, officer's exam, though she continued as counselor, an offshoot of the medical track. There are likely other examples, though it's clear that most medical officers in Starfleet do not pursue a career in command. Great podcast, as always. I will concede those points. I will say maybe Admiral McCoy was in an Admiral, um, 
you know, though in a command position, it might have been Admiral of the Medical Corps or something like that. But um, but uh, some great evidence there nonetheless. What else do you have, Pete? To Reddit, Matt, specifically our post of last week's podcast on r slash Star Trek Discovery. Spock's brain number 19. This is uh, a post by uh, Nonar Kitten. Uh, and Nonar Kitten goes on to say, when Spock had his brain removed, a copy was unknowingly made as a backup. 400 years later, they found it and tried resurrecting him, but the first 18 attempts failed. However, when trying to solve the problem with warp drive, version number 19 had a particular affinity to exploration and was able to sustain a stable wormhole. It was believed that something about conscious thought operating a million times faster than a normal brain is required to keep the wormhole from collapsing. SB-19 was copied to each gate to keep the network stable. The gates worked until some captain failed to disengage the warp core before entering the event horizon. The confluence of a warp field and the wormhole gates caused subspace to fracture. Any ships either near a gate or actively at warp seemingly exploded. Given the particular vulnerability, it could have been sabotage as well. However, only a few of the ships exploded, those at or near the gate, and fewer lives were actually lost. The eruption was actually a subspace implosion, and presently most of these ships are trapped in a time loop much like the Bozeman was. If they bring SB-19 back online and open a gate, it could allow the ships that were trapped in the wormholes to finally return to reality. Plus, we'll get some sappy moments with Michael talking to her brother to motivate it to reopen the gates. That is a super dense theory, and I feel like it's one to watch for. I think that if there's going to be evidence for that at some point in the next five episodes, if they're going to build to that case, then we're going to start to see pretty quickly stuff to support it. And if not, we're going to start to see things moving away from it. But that is that is a whole lot of work there for really a really juicy take. I simply told Nonar Kitten to make it so. Ooh. With that, Pete, let's head to the email inbox where we hear from Derg, the Markalian, who says as follows. Hello, Pete and Matt. Quick thoughts on episode eight. One thing that Disco does better this season than previous ones is to offer a good mix of bottle episode stories while continuing to develop the overall arc. And this season is a testament to that. Recurring characters are well-developed. Rin, Book, and Adira all have layers now, and each has good chemistry with at least one other member of the crew. Book and Michael have a good one. Stamets and Adira even better. Wonderful friendship they have now. I'm glad Rin was not sacrificed in Scavengers and his character is put to use in a meaningful way. Kudos to the writing room. Visuals of Discovery remain second to none. The space battle scene and the views of the planet Quijon's landscapes were breathtaking. Jonathan Frakes' directing had something to do with it, I am sure. My favorite bridge character, Detmer, gets to be in the spotlight, too, with some exquisite flying skills. Her screen presence in scenes where she is featured is something to behold, and Coots is a great actor in my view. 
Book's ship engaging the fight uh, alone seemed a bit contrived for me, but I think we all knew Osira would blame the Federation anyway. Maybe I missed something. I'll take it because those battle scenes were five-star action scenes. Osira was a little cartoonish as a villain for my taste, but I am more than happy to chalk that to the fact that everything cannot be perfect for a fan who watches. I'm sure others liked her character. I'm really excited to listen to you guys take on the episode and resume my favorite activity of the week, which is listening to your Fantastic Geek podcast episode. Thank you, Pete. That from Derg the Markalian. Wow. Um, to be anybody's favorite activity of the week, that's um, I'm blushing. Certainly kind words indeed. And with that, Pete, we turn our attention to the man in the gray coat. What with the red collar and all those pips there. I, of course, refer to Admiral Fred from the Netherlands. Hello, Matt and Pete and all listeners to Fantastic Geek. This is Fred from the Netherlands with some feedback for Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 8. What did I like most about this episode? That was actually the interview in the ready room with Ian Alexander and Blue Del Barrio. This was not the best episode. Book's home planet with the fight with his brother. Um, I, I didn't like that too much. I had a bit the impression of the last season of Killjoys where the quality of the storytelling got less and less. And then that whole thing with that infestation on this planet by these beautiful floating plants or animals. And at the end, the two brothers were able to just convince them to go back to the sea just by their empathic powers. What the heck? And, and the discovery had to boost that? Really? And are these two brothers the only two empaths on the planet? Couldn't they boost it with just more people? I found it all a little bit far-fetched. I also have some problems with Odessa. She is not really convincing. I mean, it's just in, in the acting or something like that. Doesn't really feel like a real threat. The whole thing about Georgie is getting annoying. They can speed that up a little bit. But if we see the ready room and we also see scenes of next episode... We probably will get more insight into that next week. What I did like is the interaction between Tilly and the Andorian and the Andorian and Detmer. That was quite okay. Piloting Booker's ship and the way she did that and the success she had with it is probably very good for her self-esteem. Something she probably really can use at the moment. Okay, I will stop my rant here and leave the positive feedback to others. Greetings, all the best, Fred from the Netherlands. Uh, Fred also writes in, Matt, to Fantastic Geeks Facebook page. Addition to my Star Trek Discovery feedback, as can be heard in my audio feedback, I was not that happy about this episode. Now realizing that it was directed by Jonathan Frakes, that is an extra disappointment normally his episodes are top notch or also possible i just don't get it uh as discussed in the podcast already obviously fred fred not know, not knowing that when he shared the info but yeah i think i think this is an episode that just didn't gel and that happens sometimes and i think also i wasn't completely joking when comparing it to episode 108 um the eighth episode of the first season 
I think just in terms of the structure of a season, you know, I think that we are setting up the last third here and not just in a mathematical sense, but I think that we're setting it up and it's kind of like certain episodes got us here. And then this is the episode that needs to be the pivot point. And this is the episode that's got to crank out certain things that can then be fully explored or fully unleashed in the next five episodes. And it has a somewhat, you know, inglorious job where it's like, you have to, you have to do these 15 things to set up, five hours of entertainment after it and if it's not a great pivot well that's just how it is sometimes you're the you're you're the hinge that allows the door to open and if the hinge is squeaky sometimes that's the way it is but the door's got to get to where the door's got to get it's true all of it pete how can people earn admiral status just like fred how can they be in touch with you on twitter you can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 11,732 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. For those listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we'll be back in the next day or two to talk the latest exciting chapter of The Mandalorian. If you're here just for Star Trek, we'll be back next uh, Saturday. That's 12-12. Pete, that's 12-12 in Europe or 12-12 in these United States. Either way, you want to do the order. It's the same. It's magic. We're all coming together. Uh, But with that, Pete, it's time to say adios for this episode, and I will do just that and leave you to the final word. Hit it!